As I said, the Bible talks about this principle, shows us this principle of revealing and response. God revealing and then us responding. And where he's revealed himself supremely is in his word. And so I'd like to take some time to camp out in a section we've already read from Luke 2 to show how he's revealed himself here. In his word, we see irony all over the place. Not inconsistencies, not contradictions, but ironies. God reveals his plan, reveals parts of his story in mysterious ways, in unexpected ways, and sometimes curious ways. Last Sunday, we were looking at Psalm 23 as a church. You probably know the first line of that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. So we talked about the irony that David, who was king, wrote that first as a young shepherd boy, then as a great king, and that he, David, the king, would see himself, spiritually speaking, as a sheep in need of a shepherd, not as the shepherd of the nation, the shepherd of God to the people. That's true in a sense, but he would see himself as a sheep, wayward, needy, Helpless, dependent, fragile, and even dumb. We also talked about the jaw-dropping wonder that the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the God who loves to reveal his presence with things like fire, with things like thunder and lightning and dark clouds and blinding, consuming light, that God... David says, is a shepherd, a shepherd, caring, patient, persistent, protecting, providing, and even intimate. There's irony there. There's irony littered throughout the story of the birth of Jesus as well. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the shepherd, but it also says that he's a lamb. John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came as a sacrificial lamb. He came to lay down his life for us. So Revelation 7 notes the irony there when it says, The Lamb will be their shepherd. It's also ironic that in Luke 2, Heaven's angels reveal the birth of this king, this shepherd, this lamb, to shepherds, real shepherds. Angels declare what's about to take place in Bethlehem, and the shepherds, in quite sheep-like fashion, they hear and they come. They follow the lamb. It's wonderfully ironic. But it's not just irony for irony's sake. It's not just wordplay. There's a lot to the irony of these shepherds coming to the one who would come to be known forever as the Lamb. The Luke 2 account of Jesus' birth is familiar to many of us. Again, we read it earlier in the service, and perhaps you've heard that a time or two, or many a time. But it's a passage that we should never tire of. And not just because it's a Christmas passage, not just because it tells the story even of our eternal hope, our salvation, our joy, 
our peace. But we should never tire of Luke 2 because it's such a rich story. It's a rich story. The more we dig into it, the more we understand what's going on in its original context, the more we can understand something of the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the awe, the surprise and the irony of this story of salvation and joy. Because it's not just a story. We believe it's a historical account. And it's a historical account that shows us well something we see all through the Bible, but especially in Luke 2, this repeated theme of God coming to the lowly. God comes to the lowly. The coming of Christ isn't announced at first to the high priest of the Jewish people. It's not revealed at first to the emperor at Rome. Jesus' coming is first revealed to Mary and Joseph. Poor teenagers, engaged but not yet wed, now outcasts because of this scandalous out-of-wedlock pregnancy which supposedly happened miraculously, the neighbors and uncles and aunts say, no doubt. God came to Mary and Joseph. Nobodies. God revealed himself in Jesus to Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He's a nobody. He doesn't have a last name. Everyone who's important in the Bible has a last name. Everyone who's important in the Bible, it tells us who their father was, not Simeon. Simeon's just a guy, a godly guy, a guy who's been waiting for the Messiah and has somehow miraculously been promised that he wouldn't die until he got to see that king. But he's not special, humanly speaking, and neither is Anna, also in chapter 2. She gets to see the baby Jesus. She's a prophetess in the temple, which sounds important, but if you think about the hierarchy of leadership in the Jewish religion in the first century, Anna the prophetess is not very high in the totem pole. God could have revealed this birth and the coming of Christ to so many others higher up in the structure of leadership, but he chose Anna. And if you say, well, what about the Magi? Matthew 1 talks about these magi, these rich, wise men who aren't exactly lowly. God reveals himself to the lowly. What about them? Well, they actually serve another purpose of irony in the story. Because they're the only ones who are in on the story who have any status whatsoever. And they come to the manger scene with lavished gifts for the king, a king who is there born in the muck of a manger. And yet they get it. They see it. They worship him. They give gifts to him to clearly suggest he's greater than them. They serve a different purpose in the story. They tell us that Jesus is a global savior. He's not just a Jewish savior. He's the world's savior. He's not just the savior of the poor, but he's also the savior of the rich. And they show us that Jesus is great. And he is the king despite all signs circumstantially pointing in the opposite direction at his birth. 
But the overwhelming emphasis in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they tell about Jesus' coming, is an emphasis on Jesus taking on lowliness and Jesus coming the lowly. And maybe the best example of that is that glorious, angelic announcement to those shepherds that Christ was born. Who are these shepherds? Well, they're just shepherds. In fact, they're no-name shepherds. We talked about Simeon not having a last name. These shepherds aren't even first named. And an angel comes to them. An angel with the most important news of all time. And then just a few verses later, lots of angels, we don't know how many, but lots of other angels affirm the first angel's announcement with nothing less than a heavenly chorus of angelic praise. God didn't reveal to them the coming of the Savior with a message in a bottle. That was something even weird, like the talking, singing bush on Three Amigos. Something real. Something powerful. Angels in an angelic choir for shepherds. Not for the mayor, not for key religious figures, not for the influential or the persuasive or even the famous. It was shepherds who got the most elaborate Christmas announcement of all. And I'm sure we don't actually know just what a head-scratcher that is. Because shepherds were more lowly in Bible times than most of us realize. Most of us have an idyllic, pleasant impression of shepherds. I mean, the Bible says that God is a shepherd, Psalm 23. Jesus said that he's a good shepherd, John chapter 10. We've all seen cute kids' Christmas plays where three rosy-cheeked youngins portray these shepherds with clean robes and big smiles. But no one in first century times thought that shepherds were cute or gentlemanly or pleasant. And it's not just that they were dirty. They were dirty, make no mistake. They often stayed out with their sheep in the pasture for days or weeks at a time. And that's hands-on up-close work with smelly sheep. They were dirty, but they also had horrible reputations in the first century, not just for being smelly, but for being sinful, for being bad. We're not sure exactly how their reputation evolved or devolved, but it did. It's certainly one of those many stories in history of prejudice, and stereotype were no doubt some bad stories about some bad shepherds, probably true, got passed around so much that it snowballed and then became the universal assessment by everyone around them. Shepherds in Jesus' time were assumed to be thieves. People wouldn't trade with a shepherd. They wouldn't buy from a shepherd because they assumed that whatever he had, he'd gotten from stealing. They weren't admitted as witnesses in court because they were automatically assumed to be unreliable. They were not allowed to tend their flocks in town. Not just because the better pasture was out of town, they weren't allowed to keep them in town. It was legislated that they would basically dwell out there. 
And a key ingredient to the prejudice, the stereotype against these shepherds had to be that because they would spend days or weeks on end out in the pasture with their sheep, they weren't able to meet the religious standards of the Old Testament law. They weren't able to go to synagogue every week. They couldn't make the prescribed sacrifices at the temple. They were considered ceremonially unclean because they were around sheep. And sheep bleed and sheep die and, and sheep defecate. So they were rarely fit to come and do what the law commanded them to do, even if they could leave their sheep. The Mishnah is a big book of Jewish teaching about the law and how to do it. It's not Bible. It's based in the Bible, but it's man's rules written before the New Testament, before the coming of Christ. And even the Mishnah says that shepherds are incompetent folk. And no one should feel obligated to help a shepherd who's fallen into a ditch. No surprise, the rabbis of Jesus' time wondered in many places how God could have or should have revealed himself as a shepherd in Psalm 23. They had no answer for that. That's what we're talking about in Luke 2. He came to shepherds. So if you have a Bible with you, would you open it to Luke 2? And I just want to run through some verses here, pointing out some key elements. We'll start in verse 8, where we pick up in the story, shepherds minding their own business, doing their own thing. The same region of Mary and Joseph heading into town, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. They've done this hundreds of times, thousands of times spending the night out with the sheep. Once the sheep go down, like a good sleeping baby, it gets quiet, right? They have time on their hands. It's still. They're out in the middle of nowhere. It's like one of those many nights they've known before, except totally unexpected, obviously frightening. An angel shows up. Verse 9, an angel appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them. I don't know what glory looks like. I don't think it looks like those light discs that maybe you've seen behind the head of saints in paintings. It has to look scarier than that. It has to look more Steven Spielberg-ish than that. It's got to be consuming. It's got to be very real. I don't know what it looks like, but I know the glory of the Lord being revealed around you, shining around you as an angel appears has to rightly be a frightening thing just because you've never seen glory before, just because you've never seen an angel before. Also because you have sin. You know there's such a thing as sin judgment and you have a guilty conscience. Proverbs talks about a guilty conscience like like this. It it tells us we all have these guilty consciences because it says the guilty flee when no one pursues. You ever see a cop and hit the brakes when you're going the speed limit? 
Yeah, the guilty hit the brakes even when they're going the speed limit. We're all guilty, right? The guilty flee when no one pursues. And these shepherds really have no reason to be afraid except that the angel is certainly something they haven't seen before and they know their own sin. And so in that sense, they're rightly afraid. But he's a messenger of good news, it says in verse 10. Good news of great joy. When it says good news in the Bible, oftentimes it's representing a Greek word in the original manuscripts that is where we get our word gospel. A gospel in Roman culture of the first century times was used even outside of religion. A Roman emperor would give good news, a gospel. You've heard Christians talk about the gospel, or maybe you even heard a secular panelist on TV talk about gospel truth. It's gospel truth. Well, it comes from this Roman culture of emperors giving announcements of good news. A baby was born in the palace. Taxes are being lowered. There's even one about uh, a gospel of good news. Olives are going to be cheaper from now on. This is a good news announcement a gospel of great joy. A gospel that says, don't fear, instead rejoice. And what's the good news? Well, verse 11, a new king is born. And he's not just any king, he's the king. He's born, it says, in David's city, the city of Bethlehem. As was promised in Micah 5, that in little old Bethlehem, where David was first born, There'd be a new king, a new David, an eternal David. It says right there in Micah 5 and elsewhere, he'll be born and yet he's from forever. It says here in Luke 2 that he's a savior. A savior. He saves. That's what he does. That's why he came. Matthew 1 tells us, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's the Christ, a savior who is Christ. That is the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the whole Old Testament kept pointing to in a variety of different ways. And he's the Lord, which doesn't just mean king. It has connotations of deity built into it. He's the God, Messiah, savior, David-like king, born in Bethlehem. He enters into our world. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, Jesus didn't mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth according to to Luke 2. You have Jesus imposing himself in every corner of the story. Not least with these shepherds as he, through his angels, announces to them his coming, his birth. And the angels say to these shepherds, here's how you'll know you got the right baby if you go looking for him. He'll be lying in a manger, verse 12 says. That will be a sign, okay? It'll be the way you know. He'll be a manger. Now, you're used to that word manger because of Christmas. You've seen the manger scene. You hear songs about a baby laying in a manger. We're used to that language, but... There was a time when that was an unheard of thing, that a baby would be laid in a feeding trough. A feeding trough for donkeys, 
for horses, for cows. Imagine, you give birth and you put the baby in the trough. Oh, I know it looks much cuter on your little mantle at the house. The hay looks pretty clean. It's not so in first century times, not so in the birth of Jesus. Dads, can you imagine coming home from the hospital with a newborn babe and you think it'd be a good idea to put him in your dirtiest wheelbarrow? I mean, we're not around mangers if we're city folk. I am. What is it like to put a baby in a manger? Well, it's a shocking thing. If you put your son in a wheelbarrow, it's a dumb thing to do, guys. Don't do it. But Mary and Joseph have no option. Mary's tired from laboring and giving birth. She holds him for a while, perhaps. She needs to set him down, and there's this manger. That's your sign. Go look for it, guys. And just as they talk about this manger, an army of angels starts to sing. It's an army. In verse 13, it says, there's a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. When it says host, that means like a legion. It's an army term. It's military. Angels in the military, God's warriors, these are also in the choir. And they sing. And when soldiers sing and sing well, it's powerful. And when angels Sing and sing well. I can't imagine what it sounds like. I can't imagine what that looks like, that you'd go from one angel talking to you, giving you this good news declaration, and then instantly, I don't know how many, a hundred or thousand angels appear. They're army angels showing up to sing the praises of the one that they serve, the one who is coming. Their song begins with God's glory. Glory to God in the highest. Literally, it's highest of glories goes to God. This is the highest of his glory. His glory is talked about all through the Bible. He gets glory there. He gets his glory here. He'll show his glory in this way, in that story. And this is the highest of his glories. What is it? This message, verse 14, peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. Peace has been wrecked and broken since sin came into the world. That's why there's war. That's why there's fighting in families. But Christ, it says, has come to bring peace on earth. You sometimes see that on a good Christmas card, peace on earth. And it looks hopeful. It almost looks like just Wish people well, be nice to them, and this will really improve around here. What's often left off the Christmas card is the rest of verse 14, peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased, implying that there are some with whom he's not pleased. And before you think, oh, here we go, here's the moral talk. Surely I'm not one with whom he's pleased, I haven't obeyed him like I should, and Surely that's outside any realm of my hope and therefore I'm just going to dismiss it as a lie. Well, remember who Jesus came revealing himself to? He came to the lowly. He came to shepherds. Shepherds who were outcasts. Not just outcasts, but famously sinful. 
Well, not all of them had that reputation by their own right, their own doing. But nevertheless, they were known for being a bit of a shady bunch. And Jesus comes, is born, and the message of his birth is delivered to shepherds. That there can be peace with God and with others as he can be pleased with us. The shepherds respond to this message appropriately and immediately. In verse 15, it says, The shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, what the Lord has made known to us. They don't deliberate. It's not in question. They weren't actually told by an angel or the host of angels that they should go to Bethlehem and check it out. They just do it. It's instinctive. And again, they're not suspicious. Notice it says, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Not let's go and see if this thing happened. Wouldn't you be more skeptical? I mean, even with an angel, an angel in glory shining around you, and then a chorus of angels is singing this this great heavenly song. Wouldn't you be tempted to think that maybe one of the fellow shepherds put a crazy mushroom in the soup that night? They don't. They believe and they leave. They leave their sheep, apparently. Their livelihood, their job, their everything, their sustenance. Because the coming of Jesus changes everything. And they hurry to go find the baby. It says in verse 16, and they find him, just like the angel said, lying in a manger. He's got to be the only one in Bethlehem, born in a stable that night, and he's laying in a manger. Now, when it says he found them, you got to just kind of peer into that word found them and, and wonder what that looked like. Right? Mary's just delivered a baby. Now, I don't know about you, but... I know my wife wouldn't want guests coming over, especially unknown guests, especially shepherds from the field, shortly after delivery. But these shepherds show up. And we don't know what they knocked or, you know, whether they explained themselves right away. We don't know how awkward that was because there's no awkwardness in Luke 2. Why? They're all on the same page. They all get it. So as soon as the shepherds explain what has been said to them, what they've seen, and what they're now seeing before their very eyes in a manger, they all just marvel. Whoever's there marvels. They relayed what happened to them in verse 17, and then verse 18, it says they all wondered about this. They're scratching their head. What? He said, what? Oh, that fulfills this of the old promises long ago. Verse 19 says, Mary ponders these things. She chews on them. She ruminates over them and she treasures these things in her heart. Wonder, ponder, treasure. Great way for us to approach Christmas. And then just one more verse for us to talk about. This section of Luke 2 ends seemingly odd the shepherds going back to their sheep. In verse 20, it says, the shepherds returned. They returned. 
they returned to everyday life. They returned to sheep caring. They went back to providing for family. They went back to everyday life. Oh, so that was just a little trip to Disney World? That was just a weird thing? No. The coming of Christ doesn't mean that there's no longer work to do. It doesn't mean that we ignore home life. It doesn't mean that work isn't work. It doesn't mean that sheep aren't sheep anymore. It doesn't mean that sheep stop stinking or stop being dumb or difficult to corral. They return to life. Life is in many ways just like it was, and in many ways it's nothing like it was. They return to life, but they return changed. So it says they return to their sheep. And look at it, if you have your Bibles open, glorifying and praising God for all that they saw and all that they heard. Marvelous. So they hear, then they go, then they believe, they share, they marvel, they ponder, and they praise. And no doubt, as they went back home, they also talked to others about this. And some, no doubt, like Mary and Joseph, wondered and pondered and treasured because they believed. But there are others, no doubt, that had to mock. You saw what? A baby in a what? The angel said, what? It's kind of like Paul in Acts 17. There he preaches the gospel. He evangelizes. He gives the good news. And it says, some jeered with unbelief. They made fun of, they mocked. Others believed. And then some said, we'll hear you again on this matter. I want to keep talking about it. I want to hear some more about this. Well, where are you? Back to where we started at the beginning. Remember, Jesus came for the lowly. How do you view yourself? Later on in Luke, we'll see this theme of Jesus caring for the lonely, coming to the lonely, loving the lowly, Over and over again, it's probably best worded in chapter 5, where there Jesus is eating with sinners, it says, tax collectors. If shepherds were famous for being immoral in trouble, tax collectors were just as bad, if not worse. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day see this and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, it's not that there's some that are well. We're all broken and sick. But some recognize it. They know they need a physician. A physician to someone as well doesn't make any sense. You don't go. You don't take the medicine. There are some that think that they're righteous. It's not that they're righteous, that they're quote-unquote righteous. That's the way Luke usually uses the word righteous in this book. The righteous don't think they need repentance to turn. They don't need fixing. They don't need a savior. But sinners, the way sinners is used in Luke like they're capital S sinners. Sinners know they need repentance. They know they need help. They know they need someone else's righteousness. And they know by faith, eventually, 
They come to know that they can be made righteous by the grace that is in Christ and is received through faith. That's why he came and was born. He had to be one of us. He lived a perfect life. He had to be one of us and he had to die our death. He had to take our punishment. The substitute lamb was slain for us. And living now, he offers us this good news. Good news of peace with him. Good news of acceptance. Where we can be considered righteous because Jesus was righteous. And we can be free because Jesus in our place was condemned. But it starts with a certain view of yourself. Do you view yourself as the righteous? Good enough. Or do you view yourself as a sinner in need of a physician, a spiritual physician? Do you view yourself like the shepherds? Do you see Jesus coming to the lowly and the lowly is you? The lowly is also those who formerly thought that they were of the righteous variety, by the way. You see, it's not that those folks don't have any hope. There are plenty of religious leaders who at the end of the story believe in Jesus but they had to come to see themselves differently before they would see the Savior for who he is and for why he came. I pray you know that. 